It all started with a blog post back in 2009. Remember those things? Blog posts. The blog was shared worldwide and by 2012 had been read by 8 million people all around the world. It then became a best-selling book translated now into 32 different languages. Bronnie Ware is tethered to this book, The Top 5 Regrets of the Dying. I'm Ali Hill and welcome to Stand Out Life, a podcast dedicated to living boldly amongst the busyness. Bronnie's story, from growing up on the farm to seeking expression in many forms, is fascinating and today's chat will give you an insight into her world. Bronnie has spoken and been interviewed basically everywhere. Wall Street Journal, ABC Radio National, Marie Faleo, The Guardian, Dr Wayne Dwyer, The Sunday Times, Lewis Howes, Harvard Business Review and hundreds of publications worldwide. So we're pretty lucky to have her as a guest on Standout Life podcast. Bronnie lives in Australia. She's a respected teacher of courage on a global stage. She's also passionate about advocacy for simplicity and leaving space to breathe, to draw on courage and to follow heart, allowing life to provide the shortcuts. If you want to find out more about Bronnie's teaching, and I can encourage you to do that, visit bronnieware.com or follow her on social media. In this conversation, we talk about regret, some of the lessons that she's learnt and seen from her experience of spending time with the dying. We also talk about finding the courage to change. I was beyond excited to share this time with Bronnie and She's not done yet in expressing and sharing insights with the world. So please craft the space, sink into the lessons and soak up the wisdom of Bronnie Ware. Bronnie, it's such a delight to be connecting with you and chatting with you this morning. Oh, it's lovely to be here, Ali. Thank you. Look, I understand that you grew up on a farm in the New England area in New South Wales. I'm wondering, just taking yourself back to um, that childhood, if you can describe a little bit of the landscape or the area or the place where, you know, that was home for you as a child. Sure. I didn't realise, I loved it, but I didn't realise how beautiful it really was until later. We had the sky from sunrise to sunset, 360-degree views, and the old farmhouse that we bought was falling down at the time and Dad did it up over over the years. But it was on a rise and it used to be the old telephone exchange and post office in the old days of horses and carts and it was like the station, the, the local station that people would go to. And so it was on a bit of a rise and... Uh, and that rise allowed us to see from one end of the place to the other. and But it was also very, we, we experienced very harsh droughts through the 80s and got dragged off to church to pray for rain and doing, you know, really extreme things like that. And our school holidays were spent sitting on our horses, minding the sheep on the sides of the roads because there was not a blade of grass left on our hundreds of acres and you know, our friends were sending postcards from the beach at Port Macquarie or Coffs Harbour and and I hadn't even seen the beach at that stage. No, it probably and, felt like a world away for you. That's right, living on Devon and tomato sauce sandwiches in the school holidays. And, yeah, but it was really beautiful and I had a horse and I could, whenever I just, whenever I wanted to, I just jumped on the horse and I'd ride to my neighbour's house, to the neighbour's place or my friend's house and, and I remember mum once saying, 
I, I got home and she said, I only knew you were gone because your horse was gone. You've got to let me know that you're going, you're going to someone's place. And, and so I would just ride a few kilometres over to a friend's place, something a friend off the bus run. And, uh, yeah, there was a lot of freedom and a lot of beauty in it, but there was also a lot of hard work. We were farm kids and we were expected to work and we had to work, but that also gave us a very good work ethic later. And, uh, and more than anything, it was just the most incredibly huge and beautiful sky where the stars hit the horizon and the Milky Way is just out every night. And, yeah, I, I used to float in, in the swimming pool of a night and just look at the stars as a teenager. And when I think of that sort of thing and, and friends would come out and we'd light a bonfire and sit by the dam and sit by the fire and, and I just think of how wholesome it was without me even realising it and, uh, and I'm very grateful. You describe this kind of beautiful connection to nature but also the reality of the harshness of that at times. How did, how did growing up um, on a farm shape some of who you are when you talked a little bit about the hard work ethic that sense of freedom what were some of the other kind of qualities that that I guess that upbringing um has has woven into who you are well my dad was also a a very unstable alcoholic and a musician and, and an accountant so there were a lot of different dynamics going on there but what it taught me was that nature is where I feel safest and so if Dad was in a rage, I'd be out walking the paddocks with my dog or riding my horse or up a tree where he couldn't see me or scream at me or whatever. And so nature has always remained my solace. Another beautiful aspect is that, and this is um, at the moment I'm thinking very much about moving back to the country because I'm living in a suburban area, I feel very out of rhythm. I can do it for a while, but long-term I feel very out of rhythm if I'm not woken by the sun and if I don't wind down at sunset. And so those daily rhythms of life on the farm were were just instilled in me. And so the first thing I do when I wake up in the morning is I look out the window and I do see other townhouses. I'm in a little villa, but I see some nearby townhouses and I still get to get a glimpse of the sunrise. And uh, and I, I miss that. I, I feel that as humans, the way we've, we've built society, we're pretty much all out of rhythm unless you're living way out in the bush. And, uh, and for me, that's actually a big part of my well-being and my peace to, to be in rhythm and to actually feel the sun rise and get up then and... And at the end of the day, when the sun's setting, you you come inside, you you finished outside, and then you come in and start winding down for the night. And I've lived a lot of places since then, and I've lived in a lot of cities, and I love city life and the buzz and everything. But more and more, it's just calling me back now because I just feel that I can't operate at my best without being in rhythm with the daily cycles. It's a really powerful recognition. I think some of, you know, for, for many of us, and I put myself included, can feel a bit just off or a bit discombobulated from life. But to recognise the connection of that to sunrise and sunset and how important that is for us is, is really powerful. Do you remember, like, kind of that realisation or um, is that just something that's kind of come back to you? 
I remember being as a teenager thinking, I'm so glad I chose this bedroom. And that was because it was one of only two, the two of five bedrooms that and that got the sunrise. And it was when we moved, went out to see the house, we rented it to start with. And and as soon as I walked up the really long hallway, the hall was so long you could scrape your fingers on both sides. You know, you could have your arms outstretched like those really old rambling farmhouses. And I got to the front of the house and I said, this is my room, before anyone else had even seen it. And so I think there was something in me called to it. But I do remember in waking up often as a teenager thinking, i got the best room in the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess it was there. It was there uh, unconsciously, yeah. Yeah, that drawn drawn towards the sun. Mm. Um, and that, that certainly speaks to my soul. I know there's not a sunrise that I haven't regretted <laughs> seeing or or a sunset. They're beautiful parts and moments of the day to, to really right. make, connect with. Oh, that's lovely, yeah. Yep. In terms of shifting from the farm, where... Where did you go to in terms of once school was finished and, and starting to kind of step into your career? Did you have a sense of where you might go? Did that involve leaving your town? And mm. I guess I say that as someone who my last couple of years at a very small country town. Yes. And as soon as I finished, I was ready to leave. <laughs> yeah, I, I had my job lined up before I left school. I went into Westpac and uh, the local Westpac branch and said, I want to live in Sydney. And they said, oh, okay, and they, you know, got my maths results from the school and said, okay, we can probably put you on as a trainee. And uh, my grandmother lived in Sydney in Punchbowl, which was a really different place around Bankstown area, a different place back then. And, yeah, so I, I just had it organised that as soon I left home the minute school was out pretty much and went and lived with my grandmother and aunt in Sydney and started working for Westpac Bank and... In those days, I finished school in 84, I was a class of 84, and in the, in those days you pretty much just went to college or got married. And so I was planning on working in a bank for a year and then going to college. But during that first year I met a man about 10 years older than me and by the time I was 19 I was, I was also, I, I liked earning money and I didn't really want to go back to school. And so by the time I was 19 I was, I was engaged with, with a mortgage and by the time I was 23 I was I, I'd left I was divorced and I pretty much married my father as as an unconscious young teenager would do yeah so it sort of set me on a path of of travel after that and I I lived I didn't stay anywhere longer than two years in some places I only stayed for three months and and that was for about 20 years <laughs> I just moved and moved I loved the nomadic life and some of it was restlessness and keeping people at a distance so that I could feel safe but as I started doing my healing and letting those walls down it just became a sense of adventure and I loved that um, having to completely depend on my own resources and often they weren't financial resources they were just whatever I could do from within and so I'd often leave relocate with nothing but a full tank of fuel and having absolutely no idea where I was going to end up and it all sounds very romantic but it was it was actually really hard what I put myself through but at the same time I also learned that leaps of faith are worth it because 
every leap of faith I did was harder and more of a leap, a bigger risk. But I landed on my feet each time and and I still operate that way sometimes where I just think, okay, well, this isn't making sense but I'm feeling very called to do this so I'm going to trust and, and leap and uh, surrender into it. And so I, I think that restlessness that initially it was restlessness that made me move around so much but in the end, as I, like I say, as I healed that, it just became more of a, a challenge to myself, an exciting challenge like, okay, I'm, I'm terrified but where am I going to land? And, yeah, I, I mean I don't do it so much now. I'm, I'm a parent and I have a daughter to consider and but I still do leaps of faith that don't make sense to other people and and so it was that nomadic lifestyle that gave me the courage to to trust those leaps and those callings. Even as you're describing them as, as leaps of faith, I can feel that duality inside of me kind of going, that's adventurous and exciting and really hard and scary <laughs> at the same time. Um, and no doubt in what you're describing is is the combination of both of those. One of the things that you are well known for globally is your book around the top five regrets of the dying and that really came from lessons of sitting with people in palliative care and again came from one of those leaps of faith getting from moving from being a banker into something else. Can you talk to me a little bit about that transition? What was that leap of faith like? What pulled you into sitting with and and being with people in their final stages of life? Mm, well, it was a bit of a shock to me, I've got to say. <laughs> I didn't see that one. But I had for, I'd been doing a lot of work on myself, a lot of healing, and I had definitely been asking for a job with heart and I didn't want a job with high heels. This was my whole prerequisite for the perfect job. A job with heart, no high heels, no stockings, no corporate uniform. That was it. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and no sales. I didn't want to have to sell people insurance just because they emptied their money box at the bank, you know, that sort of thing. And I was really unhappy in, in the banking. I'd been in it for over 20 years and and tried to leave a few times. And, and I'd done a stint overseas as a, a living companion, which a lot of Aussie backpackers do. That's That's all it was really. But when I came back, I was trying to find my way onto the creative path and tried to get a small photography and inspiration book published for about three years and couldn't do that. And in the frustration of that, I picked up my guitar, which I really only had because it was cool and I couldn't play it. And uh, and so I learned to play and I wrote a song and then I thought, oh, maybe I'll, I'll be a singer-songwriter then since I'm clearly not going to be an author. And uh, so in order to be able to devote as much time as possible because I knew I couldn't go back to banking, I just wanted a job that was living with no rent or mortgage. And so I took a job as a living carer in Vaucluse in Sydney and uh, that lady was ill but it turns out she was terminally ill. And, uh, yeah, so I, I looked after her and after she died, so it was a real shock and I, I remember just being really scared but just sending out a prayer thinking, okay, well, I got the job I asked for and it had all those, it ticked all those boxes. Ticked all those boxes. Yes. And I really trusted that I wouldn't have been given the job if I couldn't do it. And 
So I just prayed for strength and looked after her through her, her death. And then the agency I was working for said, look, you handle that really well. Would you like more training in this field? And we can, you know, you can specialise in palliative. And the only training they gave me was how to use a hoist and how to wash my hands properly. And uh, <laughs> and that was it. I, I went into eight years of of looking after dying people and looking after their families, which was really a, a big part of the role as well. So it was it was sort of just unexpected that I landed there. In terms of, and you mentioned, you know, almost this kind of fear of the unknown and 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 praying for and and finding and discovering the strength to be able to sit with someone. I think one of the things that's really captivating in your book and and what you share is that it it does hold a mirror up to the fear that all of us kind of have around death or being confronted by death. Can you go back and think about well what what that fear was for you in going hey this does tick all the boxes but it's not what I thought it was going to be <laughs> and what this what the seeds of strength were that just kind of helped you take the next step. Yeah, okay. Um I think that farm life gave me strength because I'd, I'd never seen a dead person but I'd, I'd seen a lot of dead animals and um, and that's dead animals that my parents, like the local butcher, would come out and kill which was really um, hard for my sensitive heart but it was also, you know, walking over paddocks and finding a mother sheep trying to birth twin babies and, and just being on your own and just pulling the lambs out and helping her and you're just there as a an 11 year old thinking, oh, I've got to save this sheep's life. And so life and death was very real on the farm. But I, I just felt what the fear was was that what was the actual death going to be like, the actual moment of death, and would I let the family down, and would I freak out, um, you know, just being around a dead person, and. Uh, yeah, I think more than anything was would I be letting people down? Would I be letting my patient down by not being holding the space for her? I mean, holding the space wasn't a term that was even used then, but now I recognise it as that. And would I be professional enough for the family because the families haven't dealt with it either and I'm the paid worker that they're depending on and I hadn't even been with a death at all. So... I think that was what I was praying for strength, and also because I I got to love the dear the, my my patients and and having the the strength to step into a professional role, even though my heart was aching a lot of the time. And the strength that that really sits behind that ability, as you say, you know, holding space wasn't even a term, and yet didn't know that's probably what you were doing in those moments. Yes. The the eight years of of that experience of sitting with a whole range of different people and then being able to kind of pull together what were some of those regrets is is really, you know, powerful and beautiful. I want to talk specifically around a couple of the stories that you describe, a couple of the individuals that you sat with, um, and in particular Doris. You describe regret number four as being the the regret of I wish I'd stayed in touch with my friends and almost kind of this sense of Doris dying with, with loneliness. There's a beautiful line in the book where you say that loneliness is the longing 
for the company of someone who understands you, which I think is just incredibly powerful. Um, and a lot of people can feel lonely yes. um, or alone in the world. And we've just been through two years of COVID where <laughs> some of that can come to the forefront as well. Can you share a little bit about Doris's story and some of what you've learnt uh, by sitting with her? Mm, yeah, so that regret is about wishing they'd stayed in touch with friends and Doris had gone into a nursing home and she she got on well with the staff but they were very, the rooms are very just small little boxes and you try and make it home and photos on the wall or a few pot plants or whatever but it's still people just barging into, you know, staff just coming in at certain times and, and there's really no no privacy and there wasn't a great connection with between the residents of, of the nursing home that she was in and she was just so lonely for the old friends who, who understood her and I offered to try and track, track them down and she was like, no, dear, no, I don't want you to waste your time on that. But I'm sort of a, a pretty inquisitive person I'm sure that research unofficial research is is one of my strengths so I'm really good at, at doing detective work and uh, when I was in the banking I loved the frauds and forgeries course that I that I had to do and yeah and so I managed some of her friends had had died but I managed to track down one of her friends and it took a while. It took a, a few weeks and uh, a, a very committed effort. But I did track down one of her friends and I, I was able to connect them on the phone and it was just so beautiful to watch her come alive because she'd been very depressed and very just sad. She she had a daughter but um, she lived away. And, uh, yeah, and so it was – I. In that last, the last time I saw Doris was in that phone call. So she was on the phone to her friend and laughing and carrying on, and and a total transformation unfolded. So instead of her being this old lady in her eighties, really sad and depressed, with with really no life force around her at all, she was like an animated twenty five year old and giggling and cracking up laughing and and just revealed a side that I hadn't had the, the pleasure to see and so I just snuck out the door my shift was over and and I just waved goodbye and she just stopped a second and said thank you you know and and then uh and I left and then I went home and I was so that first patient that I'd looked after that I mentioned earlier her family asked me if I'd like to stay in the house and look as a house sitter and look after the house while they were organising the estate and, and the sale of the property. So I ended up living on Parsley Bay in, in Vaucluse, which is, you know, a beautiful address. I lived there for free for almost a year. And so I went home to Parsley Bay and went for a swim. There's a netted area of Sydney Harbour there and I, I went for a swim. And and when I got home, I, I found out that Doris had actually died in her sleep that afternoon after the the conversation with with her friend and it was just so bittersweet because I, I wanted to hear you know I wanted to go back and share that excitement with her later and but also so um beautiful to know that from how I met her as this 
very you know lacking in life force woman just so sad and and lonely that in her last hours she had returned to that vibrant excited happy part of herself and to know that she died soon after that was such such an honor to have helped her life end that way and but it was I just wanted to share it with her, you know, I just wanted to. Mm. And and I just remember sitting there outside in the garden and crying and laughing and crying and laughing and just talking to her that way just through through spirit and just saying, look what, you know, look look what happened and I'm so, you know, just good on you, darling, you know, good on you for, for leaving at that time. So, yeah, and I ended up meeting her friend later. We, we went for coffee. And uh, and so it was, you know, there was some sort of sense of closure, if that's the right word, or or just enjoyment of, of reflecting on that time. I did get to experience some pleasure, but yeah, it was it was a very fitting way for someone to die, and yeah, and, and yes, and such an honour, such an honour to have been a part of it. Mm. Yeah, I'm, I'm smiling, and and to be able to have that that opportunity to share and celebrate with her friend in Doris's absence. Yes. Yeah. To be able to to recognize and celebrate that. What what does that lesson how is that kind of woven into your own friendships or into the way that you kind of maintain connections for yourself? Okay. So um the thing is these days it's a lot easier to stay in touch with friends because of social media. But what it helped me understand is the value of real life connection and so I'll still text friends occasionally but more likely if it's a friend I haven't been in touch with for a while instead of just texting saying I'm thinking of you whatever I'll text and say are you free for a yarn or when are you free for a yarn and so I just would much rather have one solid conversation with a friend of who's not in my life much now but is still valuable to me I'd rather have one solid conversation a year than three or four texts that say thinking of you and uh, and that's what I do and I'm also very much into real life connections and so I try and and it doesn't always work especially with the last couple of years with COVID but I try very much to gift myself with lunch with a girlfriend or a work colleague at least once a week and so, as I say, it doesn't always work that way. But there was a, a run there where it was working very well. And a lot of my friends are work colleagues as well. They're self-employed women. And so we get together and it is a work thing in a way because we're giving each other support and information, exchanging knowledge and information. But we're also women who are catching up over delicious food and and gifting ourselves with real-life connections. So... I do. I, I prioritise real life connection as not a luxury, but as an absolute necessity for my joy. I love that sense of gifting yourself that time, and often that's a gift to to others. That's a perpetual nature of friendship as well. That's that's really powerful. It, it is, but it also makes you show up for people who aren't your friends in a better way as well, because your your cup's full. So true. So true because we've tapped into that gift, we've got that support, got that landing place when we need it. Yeah. One of the other stories that really touched or connected for me in going through this book is Grace's story 
and just how that connects to the first regret, which is I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself and not the life that others expected of me. Can I ask you to share a bit about Grace's story and and your time with her? Yeah, Grace was probably, if not my favourite, but certainly in my top two or three favourite clients of all those people I did look after. And she was a really small little lady and just sweet, so, so, so sweet. So she'd lived in the same suburban street, the sort of suburban street that they would use in like a TV series sort of thing of uh, where all the kids are playing in the street and that sort of thing. It was in the inner west of Sydney. And she'd lived in that same street, married to the same person, raised her kids, now enjoying her grandkids. But her husband had been a tyrant and that was the word that she used and her adult children verified that. And Grace hadn't want. I mean, she she was happy in her lot in a sense that she was happy being a mum and she didn't have huge ambitions, but she really wanted to do a bus tour of Australia. She wanted to get the Greyhound Pass and travel from town to town and stop occasionally and take a couple of months to see Australia. But her husband didn't want to and she'd begged and pleaded and tried to make it a possibility and he was just totally against it. Anyway, he ended up going into a nursing home and so within a few days of him going into the nursing home, she went to the travel agent and picked up the brochures about the bus tour and started planning where she was going to go. And she was, I think, 86 then, so she was pretty gutsy to even still be holding on to that dream. But within three weeks of him going into the nursing home, she became ill and it was just a bit of tiredness at first and and, um, trouble breathing and it turned out that she had stage four lung cancer and she'd never smoked and he'd smoked in the house the whole time and she I think she left the house one or two more times for doctor's appointments and then I arrived within a week and she she was on at the end of her life and so I think she she lasted another six weeks maybe maybe not even that long now I, I can't recall but um she so she had a lot of regret because she had lived the life expected of her not the life that she wanted to and when I said to her why didn't you divorce him after the kids left and she said oh what would the neighbours say Bronnie I wouldn't do that and so again it was just that expectation from society and from her generation but we all live have uh, influence no matter what generation we're from in in the expect from the expectations of others that that influences and it it takes a huge amount of courage to to break free of that and to actually let go of that. But Grace, she was just such a special woman and she I was trying to get going as a singer-songwriter, of course, while I was doing this work and so she'd get me to bring my guitar and I would sing to her and and I've got this song, Beneath Australian Skies, which is basically a journey around Australia and she would just get me to play it all the time and then even... Um, when I'd get, I'd say, "Oh no, I can't bring my guitar today, Grace. I've got, you know, I've got to do something after work or whatever." She'd, she'd just get me to sing the song, and she'd get all the the locations mixed up and things like that. But I remember one morning, I I was helping her off the toilet, and 
then and she was getting weaker and weaker and so I wasn't actually really supposed to be letting her go to the toilet by this stage it was supposed to be the commode by the bed or or a tray a pan in the bed but she just said oh darling please you know I don't want you to have to deal with that later and uh, no insisting from me change that but what it meant was that when she stood up to hold on to her walking frame. She didn't really have the strength in her legs to stand for long. And so it was a very quick act of of cleaning her off and then pulling up her undies and and getting her, holding her hips while I got her back to the, to the bed as she shuffled along. And this particular day I'd done it so quickly that the back of her nightie was tucked into the top of her, her big full nanny pants and... Uh, and she's walking along in this little saggy bum and, you know, and is, is in front of me and, and she started singing my song and I just teared up behind, you know, the words were wrong again and I just teared up and I'm just trying to get her to bed safely and, and I remember thinking then because the singing-songwriting scene was pretty hard for me, I was, I was very sensitive and standing on stage was, was a really hard thing for me to do back then. And I remember thinking that whatever happens in my music career, it, nothing will top that moment for me, that I had brought this dear little lady the, the pleasure of that moment of her singing my songs and everything and that helped me find peace with my music career and its, it's lack of progress. But, yeah, she, she made me promise her that I would have she was in tears one day and she um, got me, she's squeezing my hand and she said to me, promise me, Bronnie, promise this dying lady that you will never, that you will always be courageous enough to live the life that you want to live, not the life expected of you. Promise me, Bronnie, promise me. And she's crying and I'm crying. And, and I did and I stayed with that promise and I didn't just promise it to her, I promised it to myself. And it, it changed the whole course of my life because it helped me see the sacredness of time. Being around death so much helped me realise how sacred our time is. But it also helped me, you know, I witnessed the, the pain and anguish of regret when it's too late. And I thought, well, no amount of pain I have to go through to get break through my fears is ever going to be as painful as lying on my deathbed with the regret of not having tried. And that's been a catalyst for a lot of things I've done in life that have been scary, but I've just done them anyway. So powerful. And the the strength of that, sadly, the strength of that regret is the, the strength of her insistence to you to promise in that moment. If it wasn't, wasn't as strong, then she might not have pushed that as hard. I'd love to talk to you a bit about regret. Obviously, you've sat with and, and seen um, at some of the hardest kind of moments. And Dan Pink just this year has put out a book called The Power of Regret and and I think in a lot of ways you're ahead of your time yes. <laughs> in putting out, yeah. you know, in, in terms of, of talking about this and, and facing regret. And we can be at society in this kind of – there can be moments of kind of hustle and live with no regret and just get on and get things done. What's your What's your relationship like with – with regret, having sat with it at some of the hardest kind of moments and seen it in others, what's your relationship with the, yes. with regret? That's a lovely question. Such a good question. You're a good host, <laughs> Ellie. You ask good questions. Oh, I love this. I, I, yeah, I love it. So Thank interested. You. Thank you. Okay, so 
regret is uh, for me, I, I'm so grateful that I got to witness all those regrets and to not just witness them but to feel the pain of them because it it's, it's given me a lot of courage. So that changed the course of my life as I've mentioned. But my relationship with regret is this, that all mistakes, oh, sorry, <laughs> all regrets are mistakes, but not all mistakes are regrets. So we can make mistakes, but they don't turn into regrets. And the only thing that stops us, stops a mistake becoming a regret, because clearly they're mistakes and we're human and we all make, we learn through our mistakes. So we all make mistakes, but the only thing that makes a, a mistake a regret is our own judgment upon it. Because if we're looking back on something and we can see it as a mistake, which it definitely was, and we can learn from that mistake, if we don't judge ourselves, if we can look back on that compassionately, and this is so this is my take on it and this is how I approach regret, if I can look back on something and think, oh, I wish I didn't do that or I wish I didn't say that, rather than beat myself up on it and carry it for years and years and still be beating myself up on it, I just look back and think, okay, it's human to make mistakes I'm imperfect like all humans. I did the best I could as who I was in that moment. And so I'm going to have compassion for that broken part of me because obviously in that moment I wasn't connected to presence and consciousness and so I let something come out of my mouth that is a result of my brokenness or I made a decision that was a result of my brokenness and my imperfection and I'm just going to love that part of myself, forgive that part of myself and move forward with compassion rather than judgment. And so when people say everyone's got regrets, it's impossible to not have regrets, I don't actually subscribe to that anymore because I actually don't have any regrets. I, I have things I wish I hadn't done and I would have done them very differently but I don't carry the judgment forward. I just think, oh, gosh, I wish I hadn't said that, but I'm going to forgive myself. And if I can, I'm going to show up and apologise to whoever it was because I'm here to learn how to dissolve my ego and I'm not going to come from a place of stubbornness where I can't actually just say, look, I'm really sorry for what I did. But at the same time, I don't expect that of others because, you know, sometimes people just can't forgive you and... And that's that's the way it is. So you have to forgive yourself. Yeah, and there's a chance to kind of let that go, to kind of learn, to understand, as you say, that, that self-compassion. I think that's such a great way to think about there's always things that we could have done differently or in hindsight or if we'd slept a little bit more, mm. <laughs> we could, you know, said things differently. But to not carry that forward as regret is our own, yeah, the way we judge it, the way we kind of care for it. When I think about you and what you've described and even with your background as a singer-songwriter, being an author in writing words, obviously this uh, The Top Five Regrets of Dying is not your only book. You've got a number of books and and that's an expression for you. Um, you give talks, you, um, you know, this. I kind of see this art of expression 
is is a big part of of who you are in a range of different areas. I love that story that the peak of your singing career was was with Grace, <laughs> but also there's more there's more expression to that. With that combined with that kind of adventurous spirit, what can happen is that we can change direction. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit about the courage it takes to change direction to. Do something different, not only the courage for yourself, but the courage to be okay with other people's response to that. Um, can you talk a little bit about how how you've done that, maybe how you've done mm. that or doing that recently in terms of changing direction and, and how what helps you to find the courage to do yeah. that? Well, I, th- I think the greatest thing we can do for ourselves, and certainly I've done it, is to face the fact that we're going to die And when you do that, and not just as a concept like, oh, yeah, I'm going to die one day, but to actually sit and contemplate it and give the time to think, okay, I am going to die and there's no guarantee that I'm going to be 95 years old when it happens. And we all know people who have died young and and they're not um, always other people like strangers. You know, at some stage we all get to know someone who's died young and we can be one of those people. And... And it, even if it's not death that stops us, it can be disability or some sort of challenge that completely breaks our world apart. And so with that, especially with death, you, you come to understand when you face your death that your time is sacred and it's not sacred in a, in a woo-woo, you know, okay, that's, that's a trendy word to use right now. It's sacred in it is sacred in the true meaning of the word that it is a gift to you and needs to be treated with reverence. And so for me, I see my time as sacred. And so if I have a new direction I want to go, I don't want to delay. I mean, I might have to delay while I'm preparing to change direction or while I'm chipping through some of my fears that I have to get through to go to the next limit, through through that, that limit to the next level. But I don't delay any longer than I have to because my time is sacred and I feel that we have to allow our identity to shift and I remember once hearing an interview where Ralph McTell who wrote Streets of London said I've spent my whole life trying to get over Streets of London because that's all anyone ever wanted from him and so for 10 years you know I I looked after dying people for eight years and then for uh, 12 years I've I've been talking about the regrets of the dying initially as as a, a blog and then as an independent release and then as a, the big seller international bestseller and, and you know it's even got a movie happening so I'm going to be talking about five regrets probably for the rest of my life I'm sure and that's an honor in many ways but I don't want to be stuck in in the on the lane of only of five regrets. And so for a long time I I started teaching about regret-free living and for a long time that's that's all my audience really got from me. But I and a, and a part of regret-free living is also about being present and being grateful and I teach about all those things in my work. But but I I'm also a creative soul and I don't want to regret not seeing what I'm capable of doing. And so I, I got a bit sick last year. I, I live with rheumatoid arthritis and disabilities and and sometimes I go from like jumping on a trampoline and riding a bike to 
not being able to dress myself. So it's, you know, it's been a whole different journey. That's a whole different story. But last year I got really sick again. And one of the wishes I'd been wanting before that was to not work so hard and to try something that would challenge me. And so when I got so sick, I couldn't work at all for a few months. And so when I came out of that, it was like, okay, what do you want your work to look like from here? And one of the first decisions I made was to close my online courses because I would rather teach people through the example of how I live my life than say to people, this is how you do it. And, you know, to be a teacher and stand there and say, these are the steps you've got to take because everyone's different and those steps do work. Those tools I was, you know, sharing in my online courses do work but or did work, you know, because I've closed it now. Um, but I mm. didn't want to be stuck in that teacher role as much as leading through my own example of how I'm living my life. And so when I announced to my audience that I was closing my courses and um, I didn't know where where my work would take me but I would still be there for my fortnightly newsletters no matter what, I'd still be on social media, I got a lot of feedback from audience, my audience saying, I feel like you're leaving us and, you know, you're deserting us and da-da-da-da-da. And I thought about the Bob Dylan quote that said, just because my audience, just because people like my songs doesn't mean I'm obliged to them. And that's a pretty gutsy thing to say. And I sort of felt like, okay, I love and value my audience and I have an incredible relationship with them. It's not a huge audience compared to my book sales, but it's a very loyal, beautiful audience and, and relationship. And I thought, okay, I, I want to serve them, but I'm not obliged to serve them. I serve because I want to serve and I have to make a living, but my first priority has to be towards my own joy. And so I ended up starting vlogging and it wasn't, it was something I'd been curious about because I like nature photos and matching words and images, but it was only through being so sick and watching so many inspiring vlogs that I thought, okay, this is part of why I got sick because I can't get off the lounge so I'm just going to or out of bed and I'll just watch watch these. And so I've started vlogging now and I've, I think I've only released like four or five episodes. But it's and, – and I don't know if it will make me money one day or not, but I'm taking that leap of faith by closing an income stream and starting as a beginner all over again and it's really exciting and – and I think it's important to pivot if you really want to see what you're capable of in life. And that doesn't mean that you're, what you've done isn't relevant or amazing. It's more, it's just about growth. Like, okay, well, what, what else can I try? Like, like how far can I, can I push this creative expression? And so that's where I'm at now. And I think it's part of, changing direction is facing the fact that you're going to die and realizing your time is sacred and saying okay well my heart actually wants to try something different I might be letting people down but they might actually be surprised by what I do and come along with me in the end and that's the risk you take. And the where you described as well, the best way I can serve is by the example of how I live and that this is just that next leap of faith. What what has sparked in you that has surprised you by starting the vlogging? Like what you kind of said, hey, I don't know, but I'm enjoying that expression. What's, what's it sparked in uh, you? 
it's storytelling from a different angle and that I don't know what the story is until I'm filming. And so when I see something, the story is forming while I'm filming and in the back of my mind I'm remembering the other footage I may have taken a week earlier and it's like, oh, that's going to go there and and then sitting down and bringing it all together and then, you know, with my music skills, I, I buy licensed music now to put it, you know, at the back of the, the vlog and and just creating something out of nothing. I think that's what it is rather than creating another non-fiction book because that's what's expected of me. It's like, And I've also written a novel. I'm, I'm in talks with an agent around a novel because my publisher, which is, um, you know, it's a non-fiction personal growth publisher, they said, oh, no, don't write a novel. You're really successful writing non-fiction but I wanted to see what I could do and so I just created this world from nothing and I think that's what's happening in in the vlogs is it's making me go out more like uh, get out and about in nature more because I've got to get the footage and, and the way I'm creating my vlogs I need a lot of footage and so it's making me get out and about and there was one day I was with the camera and I felt I thought gosh, this is really feeling like work today. And then I thought, yes, but look at your job. Like look at where you're standing mm. and, you know, you're not in high heels and stockings trying to sell insurance to someone. <laughs> <laughs> Still meeting that criteria. Absolutely. <laughs> Keeps coming back to that. I, I think we just have to be brave and recognise that we may not have the time to live all of our dreams, but if we at least have a go and take steps towards them, then we're not going to regret our life because a disability might come along that stops you playing guitar or something that's that's first-hand experience for me I like my hands my fingers are fused and I can't play and it's awful and blah 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 but I gave it a go and so I don't regret it because I gave it a go and so we may not because we're ever expanding we may not see all of our dreams fulfilled but the fact that you actually have the courage to take the first steps and see where it leads is enough to make erase any um, potential of regret yeah and the pathways that you describe I think you know me personally I can feel even the sense of possibility in in what's what's next so I'm excited to to watch the vlogs I'm excited to follow the fiction writing as well as another expression and it sounds like the the tethering of the top five regrets will be with you along <laughs> <laughs> as you as you step forward, whether it's a movie yes. or continuation of the books as well. Honor. I mean, what an what an honour to bring that to bring that through. Mm. Yeah, Bronnie, I've loved our conversation. I've got another five hours of, of questions, <laughs> oh, but I will <laughs> let you get back into no, 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 only because I just find it so interesting and fascinating, and I really, really appreciate your time. The name of this podcast is called Standout Life. When you hear that term. What does it mean to you to live a standout life? Oh, it, it means exactly that, just a courageous life and a standout doesn't have to be in the public eye. It's standout in the sense of, wow, look at what I've done. I've just planted the most beautiful garden or I've just done something that makes me stand out from who I used to be. Yeah. I'll take that for sure. Thanks so much, Bronnie. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you. If you've enjoyed today's episode, then there's every chance that you might also enjoy reading a copy of my book called Stand Out, a real world guide to get clear, find purpose and become the boss of busy. 
You can grab a copy by heading to my website, www.alisonhill.com.au. If you liked what you heard in this episode, I'd love it if you could take a few moments, pop over to iTunes and give this podcast a quick rating so that we can continue to share these conversations with people around the world. As always, I'm Ali Hill and this is Standout Life.